Hello, this is Fredrik Svard from LegalTech.se on GDPR Day, 25th of May. We're um, kind of rebooting this podcast and we'll start bringing on guests. And we um, we have a guest which we'll introduce in a second. And it's me today and Richard Tromas of Artificial Lawyer. And today we have with us Richard Maybe, founder and CEO of Juro. So... Richard, maybe you want to just give a short introduction. Hey, Frederick. Hey, Richard. Uh, thanks for having me on. So I'm Richard, maybe uh, co-founder and CEO of Juro. Uh, Juro is an end-to-end contract management platform. Uh, we're particularly focused on uh, delivering a, a great user experience across the, the contracting stack and uh, and particularly interested in, in legal design and how, how it can be put into practice. Uh, formerly with Freshfields uh, originally and then via LegalZoom, I came came to Juro. So I've been involved in, in legal tech in, in one way or another for about four years. Right. And I run uh, LegalTech.se and I'm also uh, the Secretary General for the Swedish Data Protection Forum. So it, it's great for me to have you both on board today to talk about the GDPR. Uh, lots of emails coming in right now, obviously, with information about privacy policies. Um, how are you holding up? Richard Tromas, what's your take on all this? <laughs> um, I, I totally understand why they're doing it, but um, I think a lot of the emails are pointless and they're also damaging their own businesses. And it's kind of annoying that the European Commission has effectively forced some small businesses to destroy uh, a record of all their client contacts, even though they probably were already abiding by the law. Because by sending out a mass of emails when everyone else is and then demanding that they have to click to effectively resubscribe. Um, I know from my own experience, I have basically deleted pretty much every email in the last week of that nature, which has meant I've unsubscribed from a lot of things I actually probably would have liked to stay subscribed to, but I just got so tired of the whole thing. Um, which means that some companies, no doubt, are having to completely rebuild their customer databases even though they probably were not doing anything nefarious with that data. So I think it's a bit clunky. The other point, I think, um, it's going slightly off tangent, is what are we going to do about blockchain and this data? Uh, experts tell me that it doesn't really sort of fit together with, with GDPR as it stands, and perhaps we can come back to that later. But I, I would just say that I, from my personal view, I think the policy is well intended, but it's been badly executed. Yeah, I, I, I kind of see the same thing. I mean, I, I'm firstly quite happy that I'm going to be receiving fewer, fewer emails, uh, as I guess some others others will be. Um, I, I'd echo Richard's point. I mean, I've had a few emails actually coming in today, which sort of has said, uh, as essentially unsubscribe emails. So if you'd no longer like to receive our emails, please click here. And I'm just pretty sure that that's that's not only kind of unnecessary, but actually just not not kind of fulfilling the the point of, of getting express consent. So yeah, definitely a lot of conf- confusion here in the UK. Uh, I would say. Yeah, actually, that's a good point, isn't it? I mean, I've seen emails where people have said we we understand we have to tell you about our privacy policy, which is not exactly what GDPR is. Others have effectively said, please effectively delete us from your contacts and then reconnect with us 
which I think is actually more close to what GDPR is meant to be. But as mentioned, I think that's actually harmful. And <laughs> I mean, as, as Richard just mentioned, Richard M just mentioned, you've got these people who've misunderstood what it's about. I don't know if you see the same, Richard and, and Frederick, but the, the line that annoy, annoys me more than anything, just going outside of whether it's being messed up, you know, off off the bat um, or not, is the line we are committed to respecting your privacy, um, which. It would if if you were to get one email, you would kind of think, okay, well, that seems like a fairly sort of token throwaway comment. But I've had at least fifty say the same thing, which which sort of indicates to me the opposite that actually not that much thought has gone into that that particular customer communication. And of course, the kind of downside risk of doing it badly is you know you're going to be losing the majority of your mailing list. So again, I think a lot of copy and paste, a lot of kind of copycat behavior as well on that. And uh, I think really an, an opportunity missed in some respects to be really transparent about 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 what you're doing with data, which is generally and should be a, a good a good way of communicating with your customers. Yeah. So, so the, the rights in themselves are perhaps good. I personally, I think it's a good thing that uh, the EU now has sent a, a signal to uh, company boards and politicians and consumers all around the world that we need to step up and, and um, put this higher on, on the agenda. But there is uh, a challenge here um, because personally, I'd, I don't really want to read policies and I don't want to uh, scour through hundreds of emails with information. I, maybe I would like something um, a bit better designed. Maybe I would like a, a dashboard, uh, an app where I can configure and, and overview all of my personal data in, in one place you know so making things executable or you know just moving from from uh, static text documents to something a little bit more dynamic i think and, and there is this whole uh, movement called legal design and also privacy enhancing technologies and and um, uh, yeah, also, also privacy by design, and I think this is going to be the top topic for today's discussion. And I know that uh, you at Euro have been thinking hard about this in, when it comes to your own policies. So, could you tell us a little bit about how you how you have um, approached this? Yeah, so I mean, we we've kind of had a lot of fun with this. Um, like like everyone else, we we set some time time apart to prepare for GDPR, uh, and. There was really one one thing in the regulation, if if you've read it, and I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend reading it unless you have to. But I, I I read it, and and the thing that really stood out to me was Article Twelve, which says at one point that privacy notices, so the the kind of key privacy touch point with your customer, employees, uh, etc., need, need to be clear, concise, uh, transparent, and in plain English. And and I, it just kind of caught my eye, and I thought, hold on, this is. This is actually pretty radical um, because I, I'm not sure I've ever seen a privacy notice or terms and conditions that can be considered in that way. And and then I, kept, I kind of kept reading, and eventually I got to uh, uh, recital sixty, which started talking about things like use of layering patterns and use of icons in in, in privacy notices. And and so I just got kind of interested in it. And then um, the Article Twenty Nine Working Party. Um, again, provided some context on what transparency means. And uh, they talked about literally using the phrase uh, jargon-free, short, concise privacy policies. And all of a sudden, I thought, well, hold on, there's actually a real mandate here to do what we kind of enjoy doing anyway, which is, you know, having some great information design in the context of legal documents. Um, So we decided that rather than kind of do what 
I think kind of most people have done, which is go to their external counsel and say, you know, can you give me something GDPR ready and then kind of copy and paste it into a into a web page. We we decided to really think about it very hard. So we we about probably about two months ago started this process. Uh, obviously, like everyone, we kind of left <laughs> left it relatively late. Um, but um, and 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 we ran it really as a design sprint. So we we worked with a designer called Stefania Passera who uh, who does a lot of work with Helena Hapio and both legal designers based based out of Finland. Um, and and we ran a sprint basically with the goal of building one thing, which was a privacy policy that you didn't need a law degree to read. Um, and that that was really the kind of the aim of the exercise. Uh, and and what was kind of striking? I mean, we did we did quite a lot of research to see kind of what what other people are doing. But um, interestingly, we just found very very few examples of people who had really delivered a privacy notice to that standard, which not not only just should be the case because it's a communication with the customer, but actually now the GDPR mandates it. So so it was a really really interesting challenge for us. And to kind of maybe just walk, walk through what that that looked like in practice. I mean, we, we, we kind of started out by putting together, putting together the team. And that, that was really uh, kind of an interesting question in itself because typically um, teams uh, which work on things like privacy policies and legal documents are typically just lawyers. So the, the kind of first thing we really wanted to do is, is build a multidisciplinary team um, to actually tackle the challenge. And kind of when you think about it, uh, if, if, if this is a document that's going to get read by your customers, it should at least have some thought put into it around, you know, marketing, around content, around, uh, you know, and, and, and we thought kind of information design. Uh, and so we, we actually put together a team of five people to work on it. So we had one lawyer, actually two if you include me, but I'm sort of a lapsed lawyer uh, on the team. We had one designer, one front-end developer, um, uh, one marketing manager, and one, one content editor. And so it, it was kind of really a, a big old big old task. Um, and and what, what it was really about was essentially identifying really what, what would be a great experience for someone we had to actually read that document. Um, and there, there were a couple of kind of decisions we made. The first was uh, to kind of present information in a way that wasn't just a long list of text. Um, so kind of rather an obvious point, but um, actually quite hard to do in practice. And so you know, if, you, if you read some of these stats out, out there around uh, this, ho- this whole idea of I agree to terms and conditions or I accept this privacy notice, it's kind of the biggest lie on the internet because, you know, if you were to read all the terms and conditions that you, you know, you, you've said that you've accepted, um, I think there's a study, I think it might have been Car- Carnegie Mellon University did this, it would take seven, 76 days of time, right? So, so we just know that, like, no one is actually reading these, reading these docs. Uh, and, so, and so we started playing around with some ideas of, well, maybe we could put everything on one page of a browser. So, so we built this summary model, which would give you kind of the key information. And then you can now kind of click through and you can get to a full policy where there's a bit more information. And there's even more information behind that. And so it was really like a, a really complex and, and, and tough challenge to do. And of course, we looked at other things, plain, plain language. So really cutting out unnecessary legalese. Um, and we went through user testing processes so you know testing well what if we're going to use icons which we ultimately did for some of these privacy privacy notices uh, like which icons 
Um, and we we tested it. We ran A/B tests with you know customers and, and on, on kind of live prototypes to see what people would react to. Um, and and kind of we got to the end of this process, and what we ended up with was something that you know people could really for the first time actually read. Um, and so and, and for us, the, the the kind of interesting part of the process, other than just being kind of fun to do, has been what the reaction has been. Um, which we've been really surprised about. I mean, we've, we're sort of getting thousands of views of our full privacy policy a week, which is is really quite surprising when you think about it, because I think previously it was probably zero or one or two per day, something like this. Uh, and so w- where we've kind of ended up through, through a kind of slightly roundabout way, it wasn't really our intention, we just wanted to sort of build something robust and, and readable, is to get to a point where people are actually voluntarily reading this document. Um, and when we think about the context of GDPR, one of the things, the kind of positive things behind it is around increasing transparency and awareness of privacy. Uh, we, we kind of hope we've played a, a small part in, in delivering an asset which, which actually complies with the regulation, but more importantly is a, is a decent touch point with, with our customers. So, so how many viewers did you have now? So I, I was checking this this morning. So it's still growing, actually. Uh, so it's, I think, 3,000 in the last seven days, if you look at the last seven-day period. And, and interestingly, that's viewers of the full policy, so not the summary modal. So that's 3,000 people who have clicked through the summary modal to read the full policy, um, which, which is just, we've been kind of pretty surprised by it. And we've, my, my absolute favorite bit of feedback, um, other than we've had a, you know, a few nice things and, of course, a few trolls saying, saying negative things on social media. But the nicest bit of feedback was someone finding a typo really, really far down the document. So you had to kind of you had to have clicked twice to get there. And it was in a, a, a section about third parties. And it was one of the last words in the policy. And someone picked that up and told us. So, so it was nice to see that people not just kind of glancing at it because it's been shared a bit on social, but actually taking an interest in well, what, you know, what actually is a privacy policy learning for the first time what what some of these choices and rights rights are right and i have to ask um what what sort of challenges did you encounter because i mean with the gdpr if you're too if the text is too complex maybe the the policy won't be valid uh, because like you say it's a requirement that you uh, communicate it in a, in a clear and understandable manner but if you over simplify things too much maybe you lose some legal information that actually needs to be there for it to hold up and, and work in as a legal document yeah it's a, it's a great question i mean this this was kind of one of the big challenges for us was uh how, how do you how do you provide something that is readable and clear and transparent and engaging uh, on the one hand and on the other hand preserves that legal legal meaning um, and and in this case we, you know with gdpr it's it's really a lot to say uh, and there's some stuff you actually have to have in the policy and you can't make mistakes and, and things like this um so there, there are a few examples out there i mean you can go and see for example uh easyjet produced a privacy policy which is in the style of a video uh, so it's in the style of a video that their air hosts and air hostess are talking through and it's kind of quite funny and engaging and and kind of consequently has been quite shareable for them. But then below that video, they say, okay, and now here's the real policy. Um, and I, I've seen a few examples of this where people have said, here's the plain English translation of the policy on, on the sort of right hand of the page. And on the left hand of the page is the actual policy. And, and we kind of thought, well, that, that sort of feels like a bit of a cop-out. 
because what you're saying is, by the way, this English translation isn't legally good enough. And so, so what we tried to do was actually get beyond that to, well, it must be possible to have something that is legally robust and plain English and transparent. Um, and really what we found is it's just really, really hard um, because, you know, you've got five different people working on this project. Everyone's got different incentives. You know, marketing wants to make it really, really engaging and delightful. We've got legal counsel who's kind of responsible for the content. And you just have to kind of work through it um, and, and iterate on it and, and challenge each other. You know, do we really need this 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 kind of piece of legal jargon? Is this absolutely critical to the interpretation of the document? Um, if it isn't, what what else can can we do? Uh, and and it takes it takes a lot of time for sure, um, but but you can get there. It's interesting, actually. It's really interesting, um, Richard. I mean, um, yesterday I was at a conference, and Emily Albon, who's a lecturer at City Law School, and goes by the name of Lawbore on Twitter, and she's really into legal design. And she was giving like a kind of overview of all the other sort of legal design trends, and it. What you were saying just made me think of an example she showed of a, a comic, you know, like a like a Marvel comic. Just the, the comic contract. And, and it was literally, it wasn't even an explanation. It literally was the contracts and like you just put a thumbprint on the end of it or whatever. And the each of the legal clauses was explained just through a picture. And that, I mean, it's a really nice example, the comic contracts thing. And I think it's, it, it's had great kind of exposure because it's obviously really kind of an eye-catching thing. I think it's interesting. I kind of changed my view on comic contracts. And my first reaction was kind of with my lawyer hat on was thinking, well, hold on, like how, how on earth can, can this be interpreted? So if this needed to go, you know, in front of a judge, what actually would that, would that look like? Um, and, and then I thought, well, this kind of depends on the end user. So, you know, if the end user is, I don't know, doesn't simply doesn't have the skill set. You know, maybe you know this is a, a litigant in person uh, in a country, and there's low levels of literacy, for example. So, what what would be better? Would it be a, a long, legally robust, watertight document uh, with all sorts of legal nuance, but fundamentally no one could read it, um, or would it be this visual version? I, I sort of kind of come around to to the idea of there's basically no point in having all this legal text if. That the end user of that document or asset cannot or does not understand it, and I think I think the comic contracts has gone quite a long way to really kind of push that narrative, um, and I think it's a really important one. I mean, well, I think you've put your finger on it, haven't you? It, it's the contracts are still written to cover the backsides of the people who write them, as opposed to the key point, which is a contract is a form of communication, the same as a letter or a news story or whatever it's it's a it's a communication and the problem is is that the person on the other end of that communication simply cannot read it it's greek to them and it that that is such a strange thing when you think about it we live in a this democratic society where the vast majority of people who live under the rule of law and expect to have some benefit from it simply cannot even receive the communications from those whose responsibility it is to sort of be the custodians of this segment of society. It's, it's a very strange situation, and yet we've all kind of grown up with this and, and almost think that it's natural. Yeah, we've also learned that, you know, we've been told that contracts are written documents and then you sign it with a pen and, and so on. But now, now we're entering the era of uh, smart contracts, uh, 
blockchain based like like you 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 mentioned and uh, a contract for example could be you know you rent a car and then um the car notices that you're uh, entering a country uh, which you weren't supposed to drive to or you haven't paid your bill or whatever and then the car turns off or drives itself back to the owner you know uh, so you can execute you want certain things to be executed and um, maybe you don't have to always you know go to a court and show all the the paperwork and then have the court execute things or have you execute things maybe things can execute themselves and i think there are a lot of solutions in the field of uh, privacy and data protection on the horizon so maybe we could talk a little bit about that because i know you're very involved in legal ai richard promans and um I think we're all interested in this because what, what we're talking about right now is still documents and how can, can we make them more understandable and accessible with icons and, and stuff like that. But uh, I see a development where maybe there will be new types of solutions that uh, are about more than just, you know, uh, making things easier to read. So um, I've seen a lot of AI-based tools that sort of explain and, and visualize how data is being used, for example. So they they read policies and explain them to you as a user. So what do you think about that whole Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but but as just a member of the public who from time to time has to read a contract or whatever it is, I think that would be quite interesting because one of the things that contracts are very bad at is showing how things relate to each other. So, you know, if X happens, there's you, this is your responsibility, this happens to you, or this is your this is your pathway to uh, an appeal or some kind of recourse, some access to justice. Um, what are the different what's the relationship between all the different parties in this contract? I mean that could very easily be visualized um, you know, in a graphical way, which would be interesting. And I, I think particularly as we get into the realm of smart contracts and the public starts to see those. I can certainly see ways where you could more graphically represent what could potentially take place in this contract. It's kind of kind of interesting. I was having a conversation the other day with the guys from uh, Dot Legal, who are legal design consultancy that we kind of particularly like here at Jure. Um and and kind of the topic of of discussion was, well, are, are lawyers already doing legal design without knowing it? And it got me thinking back to kind of practice, and, and I don't know if you, you'd kind of uh, think the, the same thing about this, Frederick, but when you're drafting a legal document, um, not, not a smart contract, but some, just a kind of classic Microsoft Word document, let's say, um, you are making some design decisions generally. And th- those decisions might be, shall I put this in a table? Um, shall I order this in a list? Um, should the definitions be on page one? Should they be mixed throughout the document? Should they be put in a schedule? Um, and sometimes we'll go almost as far as, or you know, sometimes get towards like a diagram or a formula, for example. Some complex corporate transactions, you see a, a formula in, in introduced into the document. So you have to make some decisions around information design which is how is this going to be presented so that the end user of the contract can understand it. And it just seems that it's never really been taken that far, partly because lawyers are not trained in it and partly because 
there's just been a general acceptance that legal documents are written by lawyers for lawyers and look like word documents and that's kind of the end of the story well, well getting getting sort of philosophical i mean it reminds me of when i was at university and reading sort of umberto eco and saussure and you know all the french philosophers um about semiotics and you know it doesn't really matter what the uh, signifier, the symbol, whether it's a word, an image, a photograph, a musical note, it's the signified, which is the the intrinsic meaning that becomes attached to the signifier, that makes any sense. Yeah, it's super interesting. And, you know, you, as a child, you pick up both what the signifier and the signified means. And as you become older and more sophisticated, you start to realize how, you know, different types of image or sound or word all mean the same thing. So there's no reason why, with the right education, uh, lawyers couldn't start to try and communicate in nonverbal ways using organograms, tables, and so forth. And it, it, it's happened in in web design, for example. So, you know, if you, if you look at sort of Web 1.0, primarily what was being presented was just a document, some sort of HTML document, let's say, and we can kind of. All remember what that looks like in the blue links and, and all these sorts of things. Um, and now over time, I mean, you know, but I think yesterday, the day before at Jiro, we were looking at, you know, the effect of drop shadow on a button. <laughs> you know, it's really, really getting into the detail of, okay, we have some drop shadow. Does this mean that we're more likely to get a click? What about how are our, our users going to respond to this? All this thought that goes into exactly what you're talking about, Richard, which is kind of what is being signified uh, in, in an interface or a, an asset, an image, a, a document. Uh, and it just seems that it's never really been done well in the context of legal documents. And, and interestingly, there's, there's, there's almost no better case because people are far more baffled by legal documents than they are by, say, a web page. Well, I think, I think um, because yeah. fundamentally law actually dodges a lot of logic. Uh, I mean, a web page, you might say, is a, is a fairly logical representation of its purpose. You've got a home page, you have buttons, you know, home, uh, I want the financial news, click financial news and so forth. You know, go onto the BBC website, very basic, but, you know, that's exactly what you need it to. There's, there's a, there's a, the logic there is intrinsic. It's expressed through its form, form and function. If you look at legal language, because the underlying and I think quite often unconscious drive is, as mentioned, is to cover the backside of the people creating that document, there's a tendency actually not to push the logic first, which would result in a much more succinct and also sort of more sort of temp- almost template-like contract that was very easy to read. But, you know, hence the, you know the, the the tendency to add clause after clause after clause to cover every eventuality. You know, this kind of completionist um, attitude that you know that lawyers generally have. You know, we have to cover off every eventuality, and after a while, it starts to break the logical purpose of that contract, which was to communicate something that has happened or is about to happen. And I, and I think that's where we've gone wrong, really. We've, we've kind of disappeared down this legalese rabbit hole. It, it's kind of, kind of interesting when you look at, so if you look at the Juro product, um, you know, which is sort of broadly tied to legal design, it's not the same as what we're doing in, in privacy. But one of the things we're really big on is when we built our, our editor, so essentially where you create contracts, um, was to ensure that that editor was a machine-readable editor. Um, so we didn't we didn't kind of go as far in some respects as you know a blockchain-based smart contract with all sorts of self-executing protocols. We just said, well, 
if we could persuade someone to use this editor rather than Microsoft Word, greater possibilities open up because you can uh, have a logical sequence in the document. You can use conditional logic to fill in fields and, and sometimes really basic stuff, you know, because it's in a browser, it responds like a, like a web page rather than like a, like a PDF. You can put your colors on it and you can put your logo. We have an icon set. And so we're always trying to encourage people across two fronts. One is through information design. You know, documents that go through Jiro may seem like very boring things like sales agreements or order forms, employment contracts. But, you know, these are fundamentally very, very important touch points in a company's life. I mean, if you're closing a customer, there's there's virtually no bigger moment in the company's life. You're bringing on a key hire, same point. Information design should be excellent. That should just be a given. And then secondary to that, if you can deliver that in a format that is machine readable, you're delivering benefits over time because uh, it gives more transparent access into that data. So kind of interestingly, in the context of privacy, one of the things we're starting to advocate is, well, why don't people start making their privacy policies not just well-designed and readable, but also machine readable? Uh, meaning that, uh, that the community as a whole can get better transparency into what uh, privacy policies say and, and consequently identify where any shortcomings are. Yeah, nice. Well, that brings me to the, to, to the thing that excites me the most is the crossover and the sort of merger, really, between legal design and legal technology, uh, particularly technologies like yours or Synergist or Avoca. You know, these the contracting sandbox spaces that to some degree have created a sort of template uh, with sliders and red lines, which has effectively sort of crystallized the key elements of what it is to make a contract. Uh, and that, that itself really is a design, legal design operation, isn't it? It is for sure, I think. And it's pretty incremental change in some, in some respects um, in that, you know, we, our contracts still kind of look like Word documents for the most part. I mean, they're not purely visual or anything that that kind of radical but they're just little things we learn all the time you know we we recently did a project for a customer where they're using you know using our api to generate lots and lots of contracts and it's such such a volume that you'd really want to optimize what it looked like and they they came up with a question which was you know will we likely get a higher conversion to signing of the signatures on page one or on the last page and you know it's a pretty kind of minor point but it's just a design question fundamentally uh, and it's something that you can answer through data and you can answer kind of through through legal design and so to, to me i see the kind of interface of the two is almost being temporal sort of temporarily connected so design will really help you with one big thing which is identifying what problem you want to solve in a really detailed and granular way So I kind of wanted to wrap this up with um, with a question. We, we now have um, uh, kind of take it or leave it situation. You you get a, a policy and you can consent or not consent. And um, if you don't accept it, then you can't use the service. So do you think there could be, we, we could see a development where it would be possible to agree to, to type certain types of processing or parts of a contract or maybe negotiate a contract with a, a chatbot or, you know, something a little bit more dynamic than just, you know, getting a, a wall of text and then you either click yes or no. Uh, is that something you've looked into at Euro or have you seen discussions about things like this? 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I've got some learnings from Jira, which I think can equally apply to you know, website policies like uh, like privacy policies and, and, and the like. I think like for, for us, so we, we actually already have a, a bot-like interface in, in Jira. So example might be you need a contract to be approved um, or, or you need to essentially be notified of a new signature or a new comment. And for example, you can now be notified by a Slack bot, which will tell you someone has commented on a document. So the, the interaction of, of documentation with like real life notifications and, and bots, we've, we've already sort of started working on, on this kind of stuff. I think in the, in the world of kind of consumer facing privacy notices, I think there's a few things quite striking about about exactly as you say, Fred, this kind of take it or leave it mentality. I think the first is, and something that's particularly annoying, I find is cookies banners. Um, so often with cookies banners, they'll say traditionally, uh, we we use cookies by using the website, you consent to use cookies, right? And and now we're starting to see kind of post GDPR as, as we now, now are. Some some interactions on that cookies banner which says something like i consent or i agree to the use of cookies and i guess the the fundamental question is kind of not whether you consent or don't consent but it's kind of why you need to consent so for example if a website literally won't be able to work because it requires some let's say some geolocation information then it's kind of annoying to have a you know a, a drop down ruining the the user experience because it should kind of be implied and so I think there's 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 no kind of cookie cutter to use use for want of a better phrase no cookie cutter way of doing that sort of thing I think what we have now seen is we look at some of the tech giants privacy policies I think Twitter is a really nice example of this so now giving you granular access and, and controls to particular things that impact your privacy. I think that's that's pretty helpful. I think those interfaces have got to be pretty great because let's remember the starting point is that like people just are totally baffled by what their rights are. Um, so the expectation that suddenly people are going to come in and start really heavily configuring what data gets gets processed and shared, uh, I think is is far too ambitious. If you could prevent, pre- present very simple choices, uh, make it user-friendly and make it designed for the end user, it may, it may well be possible to give a greater degree of granularity. And of course, that, that should be an objective of, of GDPR, which is you know, all around consent. What do you consent to? Um, maybe you consent to someone tracking you on an aggregated basis for visiting their website. Maybe they don't you know, consent to knowing where in the world you're, you're logging on from. Um, and and it's a really hard it's a hard problem to solve. Yeah, and, and like I said in the introduction, you know, maybe I don't want to read uh, a wall of text explaining what happens with my data. Maybe I actually want a dashboard where I can see in real time what happens to the data and what kind of data is processed and, and so on. And I see some some initiatives kind of heading in that way. Uh, both Richard Romans and me were. Myself, we were um, involved in the Global Legal Hackathon, and uh, I was pleased and uh, I wasn't really surprised to see that one of the um, teams that actually won the whole thing were that they had they had a prototype where they helped people uh, make GDPR requests to companies like Facebook and Google, and um, I think they had a good concept, and I think we will meet, see more things like that. I I tried myself the other day to make some requests, and it was kind of clunky. You know, you you uh, write to them, then you wait like five days or something, and then you get a 
you know, big file with information that you have to sift through, and it's it's not really user friendly at at this point. So I think we'll see some developments there, and then also I have to to summarize this whole discussion. Uh, you know, now we talk about legal design and, and uh, code and privacy by design and all that, but I think this also this is just a continuation really about of the whole legal writing movement we've seen for for decades especially in the US where you try to move away from legalese and make uh, communication more effective um, and thereby making legal services better because nobody is not not even lawyers or judges want to read um, legalese you know so um, so I think it's about text legal, legal writing but now it also kind of gets integrated into legal design and also code and technology and all these things are coming together and i think maybe the gdpr with all these requirements can help to accelerate this this movement and i think that would be very helpful for lawyers as well as society in general it's kind of kind of interesting to us i mean the the word juro means promise right this is yeah. the latin root of jurisdiction but it actually just means promise and i think kind of the way we look at it is we're kind of stripping back the bare essentials of what these legal documents are to the fundamentals and the fundamental, especially of say a commercial legal contract is just a, it's really just a set of rights and obligations, a set of promises basically between two parties. And and I I think when you really like pair it back like that, you can kind of reimagine what a contract can be or what a legal document can be. And I think exactly as you say that the the kind of plain English Kind of movement has been going. So it was actually something that Freshfields were very good at um, when I was there. You know, the absolute best lawyers would just write in a very elegant drafting style, which was always plain English. And, and you know, introducing jargon was about obfuscation, right? It was typically a sign of inclarity of thought. And I, exactly. th- I think when you when you when you kind of take that forward, it's it's just going to be really exciting to see kind of where where things end up and what what the paradigm of, of agreeing contracts and, and, and legal documents will look like in the future. Right. And with that, we've kind of overstretched our time. So if you have, do you have anything else to add or should we wrap things up? I don't think so. I think, uh, I mean, legal design, we, we talk about it a lot at Juro. Uh, there is a legal design conference on the 18th of October in London, um, which we're, we're sponsoring uh, with, with Legal Geek. Um, so there seems to be increasing interest in, in the topic. And yeah, you can find us at, at juro.com and our book yeah, is all about it. Yeah. And, and I think in Finland, they will um, have a new installment of the, the Global Legal Design Summit. Yes, yes, exactly. Which uh, the guys yeah. at DOTS have been, been heavily involved in. Yeah, and also um, I have to plug my own conference. We at the DP Forum we arrange a privacy conference in November, and uh, legal design will be a big part of that. So we've invited Helena Hopio and Cat Moon is confirmed, and we will have a couple of uh, startups and company, you know, showcasing how you can can go about this. So if you'd like to come on that conference, you're more than welcome. And um, if not, you're welcome to come as guests or. Uh, view it afterwards on on youtube great well thanks thanks a lot guys for having me on the show yeah really interesting discussion and happy gdpr day happy happy g day everybody yeah see you